Hello there, this is David Perlman for Conversations at the Whole Note. Lovely May afternoon. And Spring at last. My guest for, I think, uh, the third time, or maybe even yes. the fourth here, is Douglas McNabney, our artistic director, or what, what is the official title, yes. Douglas? Artistic, artistic Director, director Toronto of Summer Music, yes. Toronto Summer Music. And uh, whether it's the third or the fourth in this capacity, this is going to be the last. That's right. And it's always a pleasure to be here. Thank you, David, for uh, welcoming us again into the, hell, the whole note. Yeah. I think it was the second time you were here, you said to me that you thought five years was a good number to do this kind of thing. And this is, in fact, your sixth. Yes, I took one more year. Things are going so well. I thought, this is too much fun. We'll just have to stay for it, uh, mm -hmm. with it for another year. But um, things are going really well. Mm -hmm. Last year was an exceptionally good year financially in terms of our audience attendance. And we even managed to put about $400,000 into our endowment uh, as well. And uh, I thought, um, this is perhaps an ideal moment to uh, let somebody else take on these challenges. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, a, there's a slight irony involved, uh, the fact that uh, uh, I have built this uh, organization into such a going concern that it became almost unmanageable uh, to do this from Montreal, where I live. Right. And uh, my, I, I always have to explain my day job is actually at the Schulich School of Music, where I'm a professor of chamber music. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really think the organization needs somebody uh, resident in Toronto, somebody who can be present at all the functions and uh, mm -hmm. uh, somebody who the audience can easily identify and connect with throughout the year, not only during the festival. So mm -hmm. this was the moment, and I'm extremely happy uh, that the board has uh, uh, given the mandate to uh, a good friend and colleague of mine, Jonathan Crow, to be the artistic director mm -hmm. uh, as of next September. AD designate this year, is he? That's correct. Yes. And he will be doing a concert he'll, as he'll well? He'll be there. Yes, he'll be there the for two weeks during the festival this year, giving okay. one uh, concert uh, we're calling Jonathan Crow and Company. And then he'll also be playing with the orchestra, uh, doing uh, the Lark Ascending Von William, uh, on Von Williams on uh, August 4th. And then he'll be playing the Beethoven Septet on August 5th. So he'll be very involved. And all of this was arranged uh, in advance. So it's, uh, it's going to be, I think, uh, a marvelous opportunity to make that transition uh, for the public and certainly for the board and all our, the organization to have a transition that's going to be totally seamless mm -hmm. in terms of uh, the direction of the festival. I'm very pleased. Mm -hmm. So when did you and he start talking about this as a possibility? Well, uh, it was uh, shortly after I announced. I decided uh, on February 29th to okay. send in my, my letter, same day that Pierre Trudeau decided to resign. And uh, I didn't go for a long You'd, walk. You wouldn't, have had, you wouldn't have had the snow to go for a long <laughs> no. walk in, I don't think. But, but it, it, uh, it did seem like a propitious moment and not too long after when we were considering uh, who are the likely candidates. Uh, mm -hmm. Jonathan and I had a couple of conversations and, uh, um, and he was very... Uh, 
uh, interested. I think it's an ideal time for him. Mm -hmm. It would be interesting to hear from him, of course, what sure. the, the challenges are that he, uh, mm -hmm. uh, he sees that are so attractive. But uh, from our point of view, he's an ideal uh, person. He's mm -hmm. a wonderful chamber musician, uh, extremely well known in the Toronto community, of course. Uh, mm -hmm. kind of a golden boy uh, at the moment, very much younger and uh, a whole new set of contacts uh, in terms of programming for the festival. I think this is very important for our public to have this constant sense of renewal yeah. and different artists and a different uh, a different perspective on, on, you know, the same kinds of repertoire, but from somebody else who has a different take on things. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other thing that I'm really pleased about is Jonathan's uh, lifelong commitment to young musicians and nurturing the, the next generation. Mm -hmm. And this is a, a passion that we shared when he was a colleague at McGill. Uh, he was a professor at McGill before coming to Toronto to the symphony. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's always been involved every year. Uh, he's been part of our academy. Uh, the Chamber Music Institute at the Academy as well. Uh, and uh, I think for many people, the Academy is sort of at the heart and soul of Toronto summer music. It's, it's not the same uh, level of public notoriety as the festival, obviously, mm -hmm. but uh, for many of the board, for many of, of the close family of Toronto summer music, the Academy activities, nurturing uh, the next generation uh, of performers is central to what we do, and it's, it's unique what we do with our young artists and mm -hmm. you certainly unique the circumstances that we uh, allow because uh, for me uh, like everything in life success in any field is built uh, upon experience mm -hmm. and you cannot uh, you, people can tell you things you can read about it in books and uh, but until you actually get on stage and try it out for yourself that's the moment of true validation where you find from within what it is it takes to be uh, uh, communicate on stage and also all that information that you've been drawing from all those different quarters deciding which part of those uh, what part of that information is actually relevant to you as becoming an artist and finding your own voice so having these occasions to actually perform and in downtown Toronto, in mm -hmm. a very significant public forum, uh, we're offering a spotlight position for young artists to gain experience through the opportunities uh, to perform in the festival. And Jonathan shares the same passion, mm -hmm. and uh, there will be, uh, uh, as far as I'm concerned, a, a sense of continuity for the Academy and the festival that uh, uh, the public uh, will just sort of see this, um, as I said a little earlier, a seamless transition from one artistic director to the next. And uh, uh, I'm sure Jonathan will do great things over the next uh, five years as well. Ah, five as well. <laughs> we better double check that. I believe he's also signed oh, that's five interesting. Years. Oh, I that's would hope great. so. Yes. That's I'm great. Not sure continuity, exactly. is, continuity yes. is a good thing. Yes. Um, how far... How far out do you, how far, how much is he going to be inheriting in the way of people who've already agreed to come one year, two years out? How many years out have you got commitments there, for? There are several invitations that are out and sometimes those invitations are fixed uh, at some point in the future and sometimes they're, they're flexible into, you know, 217, 218, that sort of thing. Uh, so uh, a lot of those invitations have, of course, been sent, but uh, Jonathan will have full uh, reign to decide the programming in, in 2017. There's very mm -hmm. little 
in in terms of uh, advanced booking. It's a different. It's an interesting uh, phenomenon because it's a very different cycle for summer festivals as mm -hmm. opposed to regular seasons. Mm -hmm. And when when I'm booking an artist, for instance, um, if you want to book somebody, uh, they already know their tour dates for 2017, what 2018. They all know where they're going to be in such and such a period, and you try and fit in a date, and it's going to be possible. Somebody coming from Europe, for instance. Mm -hmm. And uh, or the opera, the opera can go four or five years in advance yeah. in terms of booking their singers, and there's certainly the symphony goes years in advance to book their soloists. Mm -hmm. But that same artist mm -hmm. uh, that will commit to an appearance in May of 2018 um, will still be for the summer of 2017. Mm -hmm. Will still be saying. Mm, I'm not sure exactly where I'm going to be at that point. Uh, I'd have to check my summer vacation. Then I, maybe this festival I'll be going. I'm not sure where I'm going to be exactly. We'll have to talk in the fall. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a very, uh, it's sometimes a nail-biting kind of <laughs> experience. To, uh, to yes, know about it. You never know uh, exactly who you're able to, going to, to be put in place. But as I say, it's a very different cycle for planning for 2016 than it is for the season of 1617. Right. So, so conversely, do you have a situation where people suddenly become available because their summer itself is a bit of an improvisation? Very much so. Anyone and like that this year who, uh, who... Well, I would say one of our last minute, uh, and this is somebody I have been after for a long time, and I only finally convinced to come this year, is Jamie Barton. Right. And, uh, and as it turned out, she was going to be at uh, uh, Glimmerglass, and ah, she had a okay. small opening, right. uh, depending on what the schedule was going to be like, and then we find out that the schedule for this summer does actually mm -hmm. have four days off, mm -hmm. and we're able to bring her up here uh, for and her when recital. She, and when she comes for a, a recital like that, your theme be damned, she's bringing the repertoire that she's working on this particular summer. That's correct. That's the way it and works, right? That's the way it works, and yeah. uh, we're fine with that. I mean, sure. the, the, the festival theme is really, uh, it's a thread that we try and connect as many elements mm -hmm. as possible, but of course, uh, yeah. uh, when, you, when you're, even if you're booking years in advance, the, yeah. uh, the, the, the violinist or the pianist will have in their repertoire a certain number of concertos that they're performing that season. You mm -hmm. may have a choice, but uh, if it's not exactly what you're looking for, well, then you have to take their choice. Well, I noticed your, your title for this year's uh, Handsome Union Jack, for anyone who hasn't seen it so far. Uh, fairly carefully, I think, muse London calling music in Great Britain, not necessarily of. Yes, you're very good, very observant. Music in Great Britain. And uh, the idea is that we'll be doing, a, uh, of course, a lot of um, great English music by the, the composers. Uh, we even have some Baroque, we have some Purcell, and uh, uh, we'll have Thomas Arne, and, uh, uh, but we'll have, uh, of course, Vaughan Williams, and uh, uh, Elgar, and Bax, and Britton, and Bliss, and all those other B composers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and... Uh, but uh, one of the things that we're celebrating, aside from the great English composers, is we're celebrating musical life in London through okay. the centuries. And uh, our London, we don't really, um, 
we don't often recognize the traditions of concert going as we know them nowadays. Mm. Uh, like playing in large halls that are dedicated to concert music is a relatively recent phenomenon. Right. And this was all based, all developed really in London of the 18th century. And it was, and the 17th century. And there were, um, because music was always at uh, either in the court or the aristocracy or in the churches. And uh, only in England with that large, uh, I mean, London has always been the largest, largest city in, in Europe, twice the size of Paris, three times the size of Vienna, with a growing middle class that had uh, considerably more leisure time. And then there were these occasions where, uh, where there's one in particular, John Bannister, who was sort of a, a uh, uh, a, a disappointed uh, court musician decided to uh, do his music but sell tickets for them in public. This was in 1672. It's the first recorded uh, uh, public concert with tickets that were advertised in the London Gazette of 1672. Mm. So we're celebrating the fact that London has always been the center for, it's been a mecca for music and musicians, right. Haydn, uh, Handel moved there, became a naturalized English citizen. Uh, Grieg, uh, Mendelssohn, Mendelssohn was Victoria, Queen Victoria's favorite composer. Mm -hmm. They all had substantial sojourns, sojourns in, in London. So we're also playing the music of the composers who, who lived in London uh -huh. and spent a considerable time in London. And I'll give you another good example. Uh, the Dover Quartet, one of the ah. most uh, was, remarkable young quartets. I was going to ask you about the, the American quartet called the Dover Quartet playing like all, a Beethoven, Beethoven. program, <laughs> uh, but How with a very relate? significant music in London yes. aspect to it, the Beethoven well, Quartet Society. That's right? correct. And th this was, uh, it's, it's actually a remarkable story. Uh, Thomas Elsager in uh, 1640, pardon me, 1845, mm -hmm. Uh, presented the complete cycle of Beethoven's string quartets. This is the first recorded example we have of a Beethoven cycle. He did it in six concerts of May and June in 1845. That's just 18 years after Beethoven passed away. It's extraordinary. And uh, he had a way of presenting it. There was one early, one middle, and one late quartet on mm -hmm. every one of those six concerts in the, over the mm. months of May and June. And uh, sort of paying homage to this occasion and to the first time the Beethoven uh, cycle was presented, we have the Dover Quartet playing one early, yeah. one middle, and one late quartet. Opus 18, number four, 59, number three, and Opus 132. I mean, a program will to they do die that? for. Will they do yes. them in that order, yes. do you think? Yes, they will. Oh. We'll be finishing with Opus 132. I'd have finished with uh, 59, with three. The 59 yes. three. Well, so. that was the question, but we decided really to follow that model Interesting. Uh, from 1845. So it's, it's, a, it's another way of uh, presenting musical life in London. Mm. So that's why music in Great Britain right. and all the various traditions mm. and uh, composers who were active in London uh, through the centuries. Now you may know, may know this already, but in I think 1976 in Toronto, the, the Amadeus Quartet did, did the full cycle in six concerts over a two-week period mm -hmm. at uh, what is now Music Toronto, 
And they followed the same model always <laughs> of an early, a middle, and uh, a late. You have to beef up the middles with a few slightly there's past the middles. Yes, yeah. yes, there's only but, five. Yes, yes. But nevertheless, they followed the same the same model. Right. And um, and the Dover have done the cycle in that fashion elsewhere, have they? Or you no, don't actually, know that they No, this no, is the first time, yeah. and uh, we did have a significant going back and forth, because they are playing the Beethoven cycle, they're doing it this year. Okay. And uh, we did have a few, they, what they suggested, and I said, well, you know, um, what if we did this and this and, and, and this, and they came back with another answer. I said, well, I'll tell you the idea. And I gave them the reference, and I said, have a look at this, with yeah. the idea, and so we'd like to reproduce this. And I wouldn't be surprised if at some point in the future they now adopt mm. this approach. Mm. Uh, Thomas Alsager in 1845 it's uh, putting this cycle together. It's a, it's a wonderful way of looking at it. And, uh, it, it is. Yeah. I, I, I attended that, the Amadeus. that series back in 1976. A lucky 76. man. A, a lucky man lucky, you are, yes. A very lucky man. One, one of my favorite and, violinists, uh, Norbert Brennan, remarkable mm -hmm. musician. And not a bad viola player either yes. in the bunch. <laughs> um, so the Beethoven Quartet Society is one of the homage venues. Yes. Or what? Are, yes. How's, how are you doing that? Well, it's it's again it's very loosely constructed, but another one where. Uh, uh, the uh, the the popular concerts was another venue, uh, in. Uh, I've forgotten the name of the hall, one of the most famous halls. Oh my goodness, we better have a look here. Have a look in the, the cheat sheet. Yes, Hanover Square, Hanover Square, of course, mm. Hanover Square Gardens, the hall. And this is uh, one of the uh, venues that was uh, really um, uh, privileged by uh, Johann Salomon. And Salomon was this great uh, German violinist who settled mm -hmm. in London. And uh, he was the man responsible for bringing Joseph Haydn uh, to London for both visits. And, uh, and Haydn, of course, uh, was a, a superstar in, in London. It's hard to imagine a composer of classical music now being treated the way uh, Haydn had been treated as such a celebrity back mm -hmm. uh, in the 18th century in London. But uh, so the program we're presenting on that night uh, would be uh, the Haydn Symphony Number no. 102, one of the London symphonies. Mm -hmm. It's for flute, string quartet, double bass, and piano. And this is an actual arrangement by Salomon uh, of this Haydn Symphony. And it would have been performed also in these concerts. But the other thing on the program, which is really a lot of fun, uh, it's the first performance in London of the Beethoven Septet by Salomon in 1801. And he, he performed it for manuscript parts. So as a homage to the Hanover Square concerts and uh, uh, Johann Salomon, we're presenting a, a concert of a Haydn London trio, right. uh, one of the flute trios, uh, then the London Symphony Number no. 102 in a transcription by Salomon, and then the Beethoven Septet. So again, we're having a wonderful program of music, mm -hmm. uh, again, a homage to musical life in right. London in the 18th century. With strategic combinations of, of instruments, which I'm sure defines your choices of repertoire in a significant way. Yes. I've always had this theory that we, we have all these Bach pieces created as he sort of went from community to community for these extraordinary combinations and unusual combinations of instruments. And can't help thinking that uh, the, the great 
virtue, uh, the art of making an art of necessity of, oh, we, the saxophone player's broken his leg, I don't mean a sax player, but you know <laughs> what I mean. Yes. Oh, so well, in fact, this is, these are the instruments we have, this is so this is what we will do. This is, it's true, and uh, composers having to make do with the forces at hand, of yeah, course, was a true that's a good way reality uh, way back. And actually, that is the story that is at the very heart of uh, Haydn becoming sort of the father of string quartets. Uh, there were no real string quartets written. There's a few works by San Martini and that sort of thing, but it really does come out of a concerto grosso kind of right. arrangement. But a true string quartet with a free bass and two, it had to do with uh, a particular evening where he was invited uh, and the forces at hand were two violins, he played viola and a cellist. There was the, sort of the and estate manager. And that's, that's what great. It and so he wrote, he was asked to write music for that occasion. And that's, those are the Opus One quartets. And you can imagine, especially if you've played Opus amazing. One, that, is, that music was so successful that they said, you have to write more. Right. And from that, of course, then he finished Opus Nine and Opus 17, and then those quartets became immediately successful. They sold like hotcakes, and that's like the beginning of music publication, uh -huh. is also the Haydn string quartets. Amateur musicians were buying them across uh, Europe, especially in London. Right. The founding of the music publishing business was in London. Haydn's quartets were published in London and uh -huh. in Amsterdam before they were published in Vienna, where he wrote them. Right. And uh, so there you go, forces at hand, uh, result sometimes in very uh, happy uh, combinations and, and works that get uh, uh, perpetuated and a Amazing. style, a genre gets invented. Yeah, that's a lovely that. story. Yes. So is the schoolmaster always the violist, like the ah. artistic director? Or is it, <laughs> it is interesting, the number of composers that played viola. Mm. Uh, Haydn, Mozart, Bach, uh, Beethoven, Brahms, Dvorak, Mendelssohn, they all played viola and it's... And it's and uh, you, you can uh, imagine there was even an evening where they, uh, the Mozart played his quartets dedicated to Haydn, and Haydn had his quartets dedicated to Mozart. Dittersdorf was on cello, and Haydn was there, and I've forgotten the two violinists, but I, you can imagine that uh, Haydn and Mozart were probably fighting over who would get to play the, the, the viola at that ah. evening. And, uh, can, you, can you see it in the music? Can, can you hear I, Can you hear it viola, in the music? I don't part? think I'm imagining it. Mm -hmm. I do. And there's a way of uh, listening mm. uh, that goes on in an inner voice. I think it's the same probably for a second violin, but there's mm. a way of listening on the inside of a quartet that's immensely satisfying. And uh, when you play chamber music, mm. uh, it's, a, it's, very, it's, a very, it's the ultimate musical democracy. There's nobody mm -hmm. really leading and uh, there's nobody following. In actual fact, that's, that's often a problem. In a tell, that, tell that to Norbert Brennan, as we were saying. <laughs> but <laughs> but <laughs> because if you're, if you're, if you're following, yeah. you're behind. Yeah. In actual fact, everybody has to lead, mm -hmm. lead equally. And this role of the violist, I, I, I enjoy it so much because uh, that act of leading uh, is very subtle. Sometimes there's mm -hmm. a way of coloring the phrase or, or or, or the rhythm, uh, doing something agogically that will suggest a possibility to hmm. the person playing the melody. Maybe hmm. something that hadn't occurred to them. 
and then, then the whole group will take a little bit of time or go to a different color or, or, or dynamic. Mm -hmm. And uh, it can come from the inside. The suggestion of where the group goes can happen from any voice mm -hmm. that way. It's a very interesting dynamic. But with uh, the viola as a kind of fulcrum in, in a certain Cer sense. Yes, and also sometimes. the bridge between the melody and the harmony. It's really a viola adds the color. Hmm. To, the, to the group uh, in an orchestra and certainly in chamber music as well. Same kind of leadership for a festival like this? I've always told my board that uh, viola players are the ultimate <laughs> team players, uh, right? So right. I have to work with the board, I have to work with my executive director who I adore, Natasha, she does a great job. We have a wonderful person in uh, development, Eli, mm -hmm. and uh, so we really are a team. So. I think having a, a violist uh, in, the, in that sort of whole mix can, uh, means that the whole thing's working. Not that it can't be led also by a first violin. Especially one who's a concert master. Of Toronto Symphony. In the larger picture, yes. he has to do the same thing. Yes. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I, took my, I took my what's becoming an, if one can call something that's happening for the second time, annual. I made my little annual pilgrimage to the Bethlehem Bach Festival ah. last weekend. Wonderful. And um, Dan Taylor Aha. was there. Great. He's been there back many years. And um, I noticed, there's a segue here. I noticed, <laughs> I noticed that uh, he's doing one of the concerts with his... Uh, the Theater of the Early theater Music. The Theater of Early Music. Yes. I'm um, really, uh, Dan is a very good friend uh, for years back in Montreal. And I'm thrilled that we finally have occasion to bring in uh, some early music as well. Because we've always centered on music of a particular time yeah. uh, or place uh, or city, that sort of thing. Now, this, our theme this year for the first time is looking at music in Great Britain. Uh, through the centuries, and it's the first time mm. that we've really had an occasion to uh, invite uh, some uh, early music. So I'm really, I'm just thrilled that Dan's coming with the Theatre of Early Music to do a program that uh, sort of recreates the coronation of George II. Aha. Uh -huh. The granddaddy of the Mad King or the daddy of the Mad King. <laughs> yes, I'm, that's right. I can't yes. remember which, <laughs> but... Uh, um, so, so that's a coronation-themed... Yes. Yes, a lot of the music was actually doing. performed at the coronation, but of course a lot of repertoire mm -hmm. around that as well. So. So the, so the right-sized hall for something like that is probably Walter. And yes. You're going back and forth between yes. Kerner and, and Walter That's Hall correct. mostly? Yes. We, um, we always, uh, since uh, I've joined, we've, we've really sort of expanded our uh, offerings in Kerner, which is a magnificent facility. And uh, when we have the repertoire and sort of the, because it's a much larger hall, when we have sort of the capacity to sell uh, mm -hmm. 1,200 tickets, then we'll put it in, uh, in Kerner. Kerner Hall. So depending on repertoire, artist, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, what we feel, you know, how many people were going to be interested in the, in the concert, we put it in Kerner. Otherwise, we uh, have a concert in Walter Hall, mm -hmm. which uh, is a wonderful, wonderful chamber music hall. I think it is one of the best halls in, in the city, mm -hmm. uh, acoustically and visually as well. Very intimate hall connection to the artist. So mm -hmm. Dan will be in Walter Hall. One of the things that we're doing uh, this year, uh, I'm really thrilled about, is we're, we're welcoming back opera. And it's something that I had uh, 
promised myself to bring back because when I was uh, first hired, it was uh, the board of directors had taken the decision that um, uh, offers, of course, extremely demanding in terms of resources, both mm -hmm. human and financial, to to work and to try and do opera and anything else is almost impossible. Uh, you have to do just opera if you want to make it work well, like Glimmerglass. That's all mm -hmm. they do, or, or Santa Fe Opera. Uh, to do opera and anything else is almost unimaginable. It's certainly unworkable for a small beginning festival that way. Mm -hmm. So the board of directors said no more opera. And I have uh, always agreed that we should be centering on chamber music and uh, the vocal arts. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's sort of in our genes uh, that there is a little bit of opera attached to what we do. Mm -hmm. And I've uh, always said that we cannot be in the business of producing opera, mm -hmm. but we can present. So if somebody else is producing a production, we can, uh, we can bring it and present it uh, in Toronto where it's just sort of a mm -hmm. uh, turnkey production where uh, we just have to see that we sell the tickets and rent the hall. And I no, bring this you, up. You edged, that, you edged in that direction with last year's festival at the... That's right. The other Isabel Bader, in, yes. as we'll call yes. it from here on, I we, think. We did a musical, just in homage, how could we talk about music in America and not yeah. talk about a musical? Yeah. And it was, you're quite right, a first uh, idea of, of going towards opera. And this year, the mm -hmm. opera production, I think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really the way of the future in terms of these uh, co-productions. It's against mm. the Grain Theatre, mm. Marvelous so Company with Joel... Joel Ivany yes. and Topher yes, Ryshevsky. Yes, that's right, who's going to be conducting. Mm. And uh, Banff is also co-producing, so they're mm -hmm. doing the production in Banff. Uh, the COC is also has also been cooperating and helping them find singers and put everything together. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the production is in Banff, and I thought, now this is a perfect occasion. Somebody mm -hmm. else is doing the production, mounting the production, but what we can offer is to have a performance for those young singers uh, in a major urban center in Toronto. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is what they need. They need, as I said a little earlier, they need occasions to perform. So mm -hmm. we're bringing that production to Toronto for one performance in the Winter Garden Theater, right. which I am just thrilled to see that we are going to use it's a it's a theater that i uh, i love i can't believe um it's not used more often mm -hmm. it's a it's a very beautiful uh upstairs from yes. the elgin yes so there's a there's an operatic beaten track to that building because of opera atelier's that's home quite base. right but now we're mm. taking it up to the seventh floor yeah and uh uh, I, I think this should mm -hmm. be a great occasion for the young singers, mm -hmm. uh, certainly for Against the Grain Theatre to have this production presented mm -hmm. in Toronto, uh, and uh, for us as well. It's a it's a perfect win-win situation, and I think, for all of us. And the orchestral players? Many of them will be players of the band production. Oh, uh, we'll okay. have to augment it with some players from Toronto. It's 13 musicians. It's a chamber uh -huh. opera, so it's very... Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's not too onerous. So this yeah. is Britain's Rape of Lucrece, yes. right? Yes. Which is getting its share of exposure these days. Yes, it was presented by my opera, I think just a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, a, it's a very uh, important work. It's the first chamber opera that mm. Britain wrote. And uh, uh, I think this is probably the way of the future for many 
uh, opera organizations to, to center on a work with fewer singers and uh, smaller orchestral forces. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a way forward, I think, for presenting opera. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating work. Um, some magnificent writing for the voice mm -hmm. from Benjamin. Of course, the subject is uh, uh, always topical. Uh, and uh, sexual violence that uh, uh, you, you know that that's issues from uh, time immemorial and uh, this is another uh, look at uh, at those issues and uh, based on loosely based on historical fact and uh, then there's also this other aspect that I find really intriguing and the, um, because the opera the the story is told by the main characters and then there's a solo voice, a solo mm -hmm. woman and man, the, the male chorus and the female chorus, um, who act sort of as a Greek chorus in some ways, uh, but in a moralizing tone, relate some of the action and, with mm -hmm. commentary. And that commentary has a very uh, Christian kind of moralizing tone to it. Yeah. So it's another layer to this ancient story with a moralizing Christian tone being told on, mm -hmm. on top of it. I think it makes it very interesting yeah. uh, and provocative, the, the whole idea. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they do with it, especially with the ending, because yes. it's a, a little indigestible, perhaps, it from, yes. from some perspectives. Well, uh, I, I have enormous uh, confidence in, in Joel Ivany. I think he's a, a mm. wonderful young uh, director, and uh, as I say, I'm... I'm I think it's the way of the future that all our organizations can cooperate mm -hmm. and pool our resources in order to make them mm -hmm. good opportunities for these young singers. Mm -hmm. So was the, you, you were talking earlier about the, the arrangement of the Haydn Symphony for the, mm. for the chamber forces. Was, uh, was, do you know, was, was Rape of Lucrece a, a similar thing for Britain? Was it an Albra connection, to coin a phrase? It, it was, <laughs> but was it it actually, it was uh, originally intended, I don't know all the circumstances, but he did intend it to be written for eight singers and 13 instrumentalists. Now, okay. whether that was imposed on him, uh -huh. uh, budget-wise, uh -huh. or size of the theater. Circumstantial. Or circumstance, sense, I'm yeah. not exactly sure. I, I should know what the circumstances are, but I know it is his first uh, chamber opera, and probably the first chamber opera as such. And uh, we're, now, we're now talking about a, a whole tradition that has been yeah. Uh, born of that one occasion, that mm. one opera. Now everybody's, it's so successful that everybody says, okay, uh, we can do something of tremendous dramatic mm. intensity and uh, total musical uh, satisfaction uh, with reduced forces. So mm. uh, why not? And yeah. I think in this world uh, where so much of our relations are, are virtual mm. and, uh, you know, we have thousands of friends on Facebook, but how many do we really get to spend an evening with mm. and uh, share a glass of wine and look into their eyes and, and have this sort of connection, mm. a very human uh, sense of communication? Uh, I think that's why people enjoy chamber music. Even if they know nothing about classical music, they can certainly appreciate the intensity of that communication mm -hmm. that happens by watching young artists who are exceedingly dedicated, committed to what they do, playing mm -hmm. great music, and w even if they don't understand the music yeah. itself, the experience is really, really mm -hmm. uh, touches them. Mm -hmm. and I think because you're watching people who are observably in conversation with yes. each other, which is essential to yes. the music. 
and and con and the conversation involves the public mm. uh, in a in a much better way than if you're sitting in a large symphony hall mm. where you're looking sort of at a, a at a more or less anonymous uh, group mm. of musicians. You see a few principal players here and there, but it's hard, and there's certainly no connection yeah. uh, on an individual basis. It's like yeah. another. Uh, uh, no, there, there's of course other aspects to sure. it. It's, there, there's the aspect when you but go to is, a live concert. But it is a same. mediated yeah. experience it's in a way the that chamber music is not. Yes. So what are you doing for that kind of intimate edge at Toronto Summer Music this year? Well, we, generally speaking, we're a chamber music festival, so it's sort of sure. founded on that uh, mm -hmm. premise. But uh, we, and when we have uh, string quartets and all these wonderful artists like Martin Beaver, Johannes Moser, uh, mm -hmm. Stefan Lemley, Stephen Dan, and all these great artists, uh, of course, Jonathan and Eric Nowlin, and when they're together and sharing that music making, uh, they come together for this week of very intense uh, rehearsal mm -hmm. and sharing that with the young artists in the academy. Mm -hmm. it's, there's a real energy, I think, that the audience, uh, uh, it's very palpable for the for the audience to get involved in that. And one of the other things we do, we have our uh, afternoon activities. We call them right. insider events. So there's lectures, okay. films, and uh, master classes. Uh, other opportunities then for the, the public. To, it's not like just buy your ticket, go to a concert, go home. They can actually get involved in many ways in a festival experience. So, so with the insider stuff, uh, especially with master classes, that's not all... That's not all written down and put in a book because in terms of the real teaching relationship that's happening, you can't impose on teacher and student that they must reach a certain point in order to go public yes. necessarily. So how do people get involved in that? How do people get on the inside well, for the insiders? We stuff? do have public master classes. Okay. So we, we, we do have, uh, we don't want to interrupt that sort of master apprentice relationship and, right. and uh, somehow subject it either to grandstanding on the part of the master mm. or, or somehow that the apprentice is so concerned about performing that they that they're that, not learning that they're not really learning and they, yeah. they 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 refuse to make themselves vulnerable in the sense they have to when they when they really yeah. want to learn something yeah. uh, so we don't want to interrupt that but at the same time we recognize that performing is also part of the process yeah. so uh, and uh, for the public then to witness this process is also mm. very important. So we do have these public master classes. Right. These are the few occasions where we say we invite the public in to witness this process. Right. And everybody's comfortable with the balance we have at the moment. So okay. usually one public master class per week in different mm -hmm. instruments. Okay. Uh, no separate uh, student concert series this year? Well, we've tried to... I know away. you've done it in different yes, ways and we've played, experimented yes, with it. It's and not an easy thing to do. No, and um, the sort of a, a because we're dealing with true emerging artists. They're mm. at the cusp, and uh, and there many of them are already professionals, and and they're, right. they're uh, but they're coming back for this, you know, essentially for a moment of resourcing. Uh, oh, that's French. Sorry, of uh, enrichment and, and wanting to go back and hear more. They want to challenge themselves. So they go back into that mode more of being a student, but they're not really students. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to get away from this idea that these are sort of student 
uh, or academy concerts. So this is why, and especially when we're talking about the Chamber Music Institute, yeah. they're actually performing with, with the their mentors. mentors. Mm -hmm. And so this is, uh, this is the real thing. Mm -hmm. uh, they're getting experiment. They're getting experience performing the work, but they're also performing with somebody who's done it dozens of times. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a double uh, opportunity for them to mm -hmm. really learn what it's about to be part of this profession. I remember you uh, on another occasion talking about how for the mentor who has sometimes done it hundreds, if not thousands of times, there's this other experience of revisiting the the innocence and the discovery of the of yeah. the early of their own earlier life with the, the work that's right seeing the passion of somebody mm. who's playing it for the first time is also an inspiration so it is yeah. a two-way communication very much so mm. and that's why i say these concerts are not student concerts these are actually occasions where i think some mm. of the most interesting music making happens in the festival. So we have uh, branded them this year. I think it's really quite good. We're calling them uh, Regeneration. Right. And the, the play, of course, is that everybody's being regenerated. Yeah. Perhaps the master, as we just discussed, is rediscovering the passion of somebody who's doing it for the first time. And of course, it's the new generation who's doing it perhaps yeah. for the first time. So we're calling these uh, chamber music regeneration concerts. Okay. And the same thing for Art of Song, it's Art of Song Regeneration. So right. I think uh, it's a way of really, you know, more accurately reflecting the nature of these concerts. They mm -hmm. are not student concerts. These are full-fledged professional concerts, uh, but given to our emerging artists, giving mm -hmm. them the chance to do it in, in, in public. Mm -hmm. It's been a journey over the six years. Um, That's really quite extraordinary I'm very proud of what we've accomplished mm -hmm. uh, all of us and it is a team that's, that, that's done every, everything together we've brought this uh, uh, I think uh, uh, a long way to uh, notoriety I think it's become an important fixture now in the Toronto music scene we certainly are developing partnerships we had the Toronto Symphony play for us two years ago yep. we're developing partnerships with uh, uh, Banff and uh, the Against, Against the Grain Theatre and the COC and uh, we've become I think a very essential part of the musical landscape in the summer for Toronto. Mm -hmm. We've built an academy that uh, I think fills a true need in Canada. There's mm. no other place now where young artists can have this uh, a golden opportunity to perform on stage in a major festival. So for the public, uh, a large public, who knows, and get their names known. Mm -hmm. and Is it 100% scholarship? Yes, now? full fellowship. Because that's a huge, also a huge it, transition it, in the process. It during was from your, the beginning. Was it? From the beginning, from the very I said, beginning. to make this work, it has to be full fellowship. And to their immense yeah. credit, the board, uh, the board saw that. Yeah. It was very clear that, okay, if we're going to make it at the highest level, if we're talking about professionals, yeah. uh, they, they can't afford to take time out or uh, uh, from, you know, earning somewhere else of, of concerts or, uh, you know, the, the, there's financial ob obstacles for, for young professionals to, yeah. to, to do this sort of thing. We didn't want to add another one with making it sort of prohibitively expensive. Mm. So we cut down the number of applicants. It's a small cohort, only mm. 28 young artists participate in the festival. So uh, it's possible then for us to really provide uh, the, a tuition-free experience for these young artists mm -hmm. to perform.
And for you next? Ah. ah. You talked about uh, you talked about being able to concentrate on the day job, but how about musically in terms of your own instrument? My own performing career. Are you looking forward in, to oh having yes. more time for that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, playing playing an instrument and being able to play with the colleagues that I get to play with just this afternoon, uh, for instance, at the the Bradshaw Amphitheater. Mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, it's. Uh, I, I, I feel like I, I, I'm one of the most fortunate people uh, <laughs> alive to play great music with wonderful colleagues, and uh, I want to be able to devote a little more time to that, uh, the time left. And uh, there, is, uh, there, there are other projects that I, I have in mind, always uh. related to working for emerging musicians. Mm -hmm. And uh, I feel like I've brought this organization to uh, a really, really nice spot, and bringing in somebody a little bit more younger, now with new ideas. Easier uh, to spot across the room <laughs> as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you're looking Can't to... Can't miss him. <laughs> and uh, from, from that point of view, uh, I think uh, everything is poised just to uh, take the festival to the next level. And I couldn't be happier to sort of pass this uh, torch uh, along to somebody like Jonathan and, and say, okay, you run with it now, Jonathan. It's yours. Take mm -hmm. it where you want. Great note to end on. It's been a pleasure to be along for the, along for the ride and to watch it yep. grow and morph and change along the way. Thank you, David, for and your congratulations support. Congratulations to you. And the whole note over the years. It's been mm -hmm. much appreciated and a pleasure. And I have to say, one of the great, uh, one of the great sort of personal uh, experience for me, uh, one of the great advantages has been the wonderful people that I've been able to meet in Toronto uh, on the board and supporters uh, uh, for of the festival, some really remarkable people. And those are friendships that I, uh, um, those are for life, those connections. It's been a wonderful, uh, wonderful uh, journey. Maybe we'll see you back as a mentor for some of the fellows at some point. Who knows? And thank you all, those of you who listen to these things. We'll see you again. Bye-bye.